You're listening to the What Do You Actually Do podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an inspiring interview, a useful tip or encouraging message to help you find your place in the professional world. Hello and welcome to this episode of What Do You Actually Do? My name's Kate Morris and I'll be your host today. In today's episode, we'll be talking about working in the aerospace sector. Today, we're joined by Neil Melville, who works as a payload system engineer and parabolic flight coordinator at the European Space Agency. So, Neil, that is a long title. What do you actually do? (laughs) Well, um, actually, I I effectively had two jobs. That's why it's such a long title. So my, my main job, I guess, is the parabolic flight coordinator. Parabolic flights are a way that ESA um, uses a a special type of aeroplane to get zero gravity so that we can test um, some of our experiments, we can test some human subjects, we can test our technologies in zero gravity before we send them to space. And my job, uh, about half of my job, is is to run those flights and coordinate that program. And then the other half of my job is to work as a systems engineer, developing various different projects and payloads. So it's kind of two titles in one, really. So do you get to go up in those flights then? Uh, I do, yes. If there's if there's any ESA experiment on board, then uh, I have to be there. It's a tragic shame that somebody's got to do it. <laughs> so what what would you say are sort of the key elements of your role then? If you've got this kind of dual aspect to it um, and you're you're going up into space and those kind of things, what are sort of the key tasks that you'd say make up the bulk of your roles? Well, I should clarify there. I don't go into space. I'm not an astronaut. <laughs> um, I mean, I would love to be, of course. The parabolic plane flies actually a little bit lower than, than most planes normally. Oh. It's, uh, it's an Airbus A310. It's not actually so different to ones that you would have flown in uh, commercially, but it's got most of the seats taken out and the floors, wall and ceiling padded um, so that we can't hurt ourselves. And then the experiments are all bolted to the floor. And uh, for each parabola, the plane pulls up and gives like 20 seconds of, of 2G while it aims itself up into the sky, like 50 degrees nose up. And then the pilots let it fall over the top. You get 20 seconds of 0G um, where we do all of our work. And then uh, another 20 seconds of 2G to level back out. So that's like one minute in total. And we do that every three minutes for two hours. So, so yet that repetition allows us to do lots of tests. So my job while that is going on is to make sure that all the experiments are running well, that all of the scientists and engineers are able to do their jobs and have everything they need to do their jobs. The test subjects are available when they need to be, the timing is being controlled, all of that kind of stuff. And the plane doesn't actually belong to ESA. The plane belongs to a, a company called Novaspace, which is a subsidiary of the French space agency, Gannett. So I run the contract with them. So I'm also basically the customer in that regard. So I've got to make sure that they are delivering to us what we need in terms of the quality of the flight of the, of the zero gravity. Again, the timing of the parabolas and that everyone has a power for their experiments and uh, uh, that all of the safety measures are, are being controlled properly to make sure that everyone's safe and healthy on board. So it's quite a lot of different things that I could have to do on board. But if we plan very well and it's going smoothly, then it's actually very easy and everything should just work. But that depends on how we've prepared in advance. So most of my job is the six months before that, making sure that everything's going to go well. You've sort of mentioned before when we were chatting that you travel about meeting different people in kind of different countries in Europe quite a lot. Is that kind of meeting people who are involved in the experiments and you're kind of that's part of this getting your ducks in a row by lining these things up with these different people or is that working on different contracts? Uh, no, that, that's absolutely right. So 
typically we will have 10 or 12 research teams on board for each parabolic flight campaign. And they could come from anywhere, any of the ESA member states, any academic institution can apply. And if we like uh, what, the, what they're proposing to do, then they get selected, they get to fly for free. And then quite often, I will need to go and visit them with Novaspace, the, the company that operate the plane, and uh, see what, what their hardware looks like, see what their planning is like, make sure that they understand all of the safety constraints that they have to work within. And yeah, as you say, get all the ducks in a row, make sure that they are all ready so that when we finally come to, to Bordeaux, which is where the plane is operated from, it goes well and they can get the plane, get the experiments on board the plane, demonstrate that all the safety um, verifications have been met and then be ready for flight on time. Because, of course, delays are uh, very, very costly once we have everybody there. So how, given that there's so many different people involved from lots of different countries and you're in certain locations, how has the pandemic impacted on your work? Uh, that has been very challenging, of course, I mean, as it's been for everyone, no doubt. Typically, our campaigns are, are twice a year, uh, maybe three times if we're if we're feeling flush. Um, so one in the spring, one in the autumn, and it takes about six months to prepare. So there's always one on the go. At the beginning of the pandemic, um, we did have to cancel a campaign that was going to be uh, May 2020, and we we weren't ready for that. The the, the testing facilities weren't available um, for us to find a way to make that happen safely. And there were so many travel restrictions all over Europe, we couldn't manage. After that, um, we managed to carry on more or less as normal. The way that we did it was to have a few different possible locations identified, because of course, this is on a plane, we can go mm. where we like. So we identified a few different um, airports. There was uh, Bordeaux in France, Paderborn in Germany, or Zurich in Switzerland. And we basically made arrangements to run the campaign in any of those three. And then all participants kept track of their their travel regulations from their home station to each of those three options. And then we basically trying to plan three campaigns in parallel. One month in advance, we took a vote of which location would get the most people there and therefore the most scientific return and committed to it as late as we could because the travel regulations kept changing. So that was that was a logistical nightmare, of yeah. course. And it meant that we didn't always manage to fill the plane. And then when, when we were there, of course, everyone has to work with the, with the distancing, which is very difficult, with um, proper uh, surgical grade masks and flying with the masks as well, which is difficult. And we tested everyone every day. We bought a, a set of machines and we had dedicated medical staff on site. And uh, we, we tested all participants every day, which was, it gets tiresome after a while, as, as I'm sure everyone knows by now. Um, but it was the only way we could be sure to keep people safe. So it certainly had an impact, but I'm very pleased that we managed to keep going. Yeah, it's amazing that given all of that, you were able to still continue because I guess the the easy route would have been just like, oh, we'll just pause everything and come back to it. But to find a way to make it work with all of those different people, that that is an achievement. Um, but I agree, it does sound like a logistical note. It sounds like a right headache to, to try yeah. and do all of that. Because at the beginning, it was quite tempting. You know, we all hoped yeah. This pandemic wouldn't last very long. We said, oh, yeah, okay, let's just pause. But, uh, you know, we had a suspicion it might go on for this long. And if we had paused for this long, I don't know how the how the company that runs the plane would have survived, for example. Mm. This is their, their core business. And we've got a great deal of, of scientific work to get done. Uh, so just pausing it for two years would have been a, a, a real problem, a real tragedy, actually, for, yeah. for our scientific program. 
So just sort of thinking about yourself and your starting point in this, you did an MPhys degree in physics and philosophy here at York. Um, So there's obvious links between your work and the physics element of your degree. But do you think the philosophy aspect impact on on your career at all or gave you any particular transferable skills that have proved useful? Ah, that's That's a good question. I think it did. I mean, I don't <laughs> I don't go into metaphysics too much um, in my daily job, of course, but definitely in terms of analytical thinking, um, logical, sequential progression of the work. Yeah, I, I, I do think it I do think it helped. These things are not always straightforward uh, following procedure A, B, C, D. There's often quite a lot of debate and discussion. There's often difficult decisions to be made about about the right way to go ahead. And I think logical and analytical thinking is really very important. And uh, that, that's the kind of philosophy I, I did. I did philosophy of mathematics, philosophy of mm-hmm. physics, philosophy of quantum mechanics, that kind of stuff. Um, so perhaps a, a little further from the, the softer side of philosophy that a lot of people might imagine, which, of course, I had to do in my first year as, as core subject. But definitely the, 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 the ability to debate and discuss and logically construct arguments to make decisions. Um, I, I've taken from the degree into my work and sort of also breaking into it because I guess working for ESA has got to be a dream job for many physics students how did you actually make it happen did you get any work experience or do any extracurricular projects as a student that sort of helped you break into it in those early years it was a dream job I suppose I was always interested in space I never really believed I would end up doing this when I was in my third year yeah my third year at university I, I saw a poster from the ESA education office advertising a student parabolic flight campaign. And if you could propose a student experiment that, that was good enough, then you might get selected to fly. And that's what we did um, in 2001. So I, I first went on these parabolic flights as a student and loved it, of course, and looked at what the ESA education office were doing and thought, ah, oh, that, that looks quite interesting. And I'd quite like to come back on this plane again. And uh, a traineeship opened up in their group. Uh, so I applied for that and it was just going to be a year to start with um, and, I, and I got it luckily for me and I, I was also halfway through a, a second project with them uh, on the basis of our parabolic flight experiment we got selected to put a more complex version onto a Russian um, orbital capsule for two weeks so I was halfway through preparing that at the end of my fourth year at the end of my master's um, in parallel with my master's it wasn't anything to do with my degree quite hard work actually and just before the launch uh, was when I got my traineeship. So, so yeah, those extracurricular curricular activities, of course, put me in a good position because then the education office knew me, half of the interpa- interview panel knew me already, and I was kind of eschewing really for the role, um, which, was, which was great for me. I only went for one year. I moved to the Netherlands immediately from York, came for one year, and I'm still here nearly 20 years later, um, having done that traineeship for two years, and then I, uh, I got a, a contract for four or so before becoming staff member. Did you have to speak any other European languages in order to work for them? No, the working languages of the agency are French and English. You need to be fluent in at least one of them. It is a bonus to speak something else, but language is, is certainly not my strong point. Uh, I, can, I can kind of get by in Dutch, um, but everyone else's English here is so much better um, that I don't really get much chance, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, I can imagine. 
so that's pretty amazing that you just happened to see that poster hey because that kind of <laughs> built your whole career from seeing that poster yeah it's ridiculous to be honest and that we got selected for that and then got selected for the Russian capsule and then I got selected for the traineeship and normally then in ESA trainees just finished their traineeship and the idea is that they go into industry they go and work for one of the companies that support ESA and get more experience then come back that's the normal route but through chance or perhaps (laughs) slightly through design on my part my projects that I were doing which were quite a few different types of projects were always out of sync with my contracts. So I was like, well, I can finish now if you like. (laughs) Who's going to take over? (laughs) And uh, I kept getting these contracts renewed. And it just gave the opportunity, I think, for people to see what I could do. And a couple of people noticed. And uh, yeah, 2008, someone in in one of the other departments in in ESA said, there is this staff vacancy uh, that you should apply for. Uh, and I'd already been been sh- sharing my time with them as a contractor on uh, on some of their projects, uh, so I, I knew them very well. Yeah, I was kind of internally headhunted, I suppose, uh, on the basis of managing to to hang around long enough. <laughs> I think that's an interesting point, though, because I think in any work experience, internship, placement opportunity. If you stand out from the crowd, if you make yourself useful and take the opportunity to build these different relationships, it can help to actually get a job with that place, can't it? Rather than if you just do what you've been asked, do the minimum and keep quiet. If you make more of that impact, it's it's easier to stand out from the crowd. I've definitely found that. And I, I, I don't want to imply, by the way, that I've been working on parabolic flights the whole time. That was how I started. And that's what I'm doing now. But my career in between was nothing to do with it. So I was assigned to quite a lot of different things. I was systems engineer for a student spacecraft and then for a ground station network and then for payloads on the International Space Station and payloads on uh, sounding rockets, which are like suborbital rockets that just get 10, 15 minutes in space. And in all of those things, like it it was a wonderful experience to have all these challenges, especially since I didn't have any qualifications or experience in engineering to start with. I learned how to be a systems engineer by doing it and actually mostly by doing it wrong, to be honest. That's where you really learn. Um, And having made all of those mistakes myself, I I really understand why we work the way we do and how it's meant to be done. But I I always made sure I put everything into it because because I'm passionate about it. I mean, if you're, you know, if you love what you do, then you never work a day in your life. That's the saying, Mm -hmm. isn't it? And I I always managed to throw myself into these projects and find ways to really love it and gave it my all. And that's the best way to get noticed, whatever you are doing. Um, And even though it's not necessarily directly related to my parabolic flight role now, it is what enabled me to get noticed and be offered the position that I'm in. Is that quite a typical career path within ESA then to to do different roles and and kind of build up a collection of experience um, and kind of work your way up that way? Or are there more people who are from a pure engineering background and are kind of doing a specific role and just stay in that lane kind of thing? It's a bit of a mixture. I think I think the latter is probably more typical to have a specialization to go to to have a a particular um, engineering or scientific specialization to get hired for that. But of course, everything we do is project based because we'll have different missions, different different spacecraft going different places, doing different things. Most of those big missions that you will have heard of, like spacecraft going to Mars Express and the rovers that they're working on and the moon project that they're working on, those are a, a decade long. 
So if you get assigned to those projects, you may only have the opportunity to do two or three projects in your whole career because mm. it takes so long to do it. I've been very lucky. Somehow, I don't really know how, somehow I got a reputation for being good at the awkward, quick little things where, oh, we just want to fly such and such to the space station next year. And to be honest, it doesn't matter how small and simple it is. You've still got to go through the same process, mm -hmm. the same safety process, the same acceptance process. And I learned that by, by doing it. But I managed to, to get a bit of a reputation for doing it quite fast for, for weird little things that no one else wanted to take on. So in contrast to that, only having two or three projects in your career, I've already had like 12, 13 small, much simpler ones. Yeah, but, that, but that's given me a, a, a breadth of experience, which is what you want as a systems engineer. I'm not a specialist in anything. I'm not an expert in anything. And that's correct. So underneath my technical role, there'll be an electrical engineer and a structural engineer and a software engineer and a thermal engineer and blah, 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 blah. And I'm the one that has to give all of them their requirements and make sure that they design and build and test something that fulfills those requirements. But I've got to make it all fit together. I've got to have the overall engineering layer to make sure that what we all build together will function to do the job the scientists want. And if I were an expert in any of those tasks, I would get too distracted by the nuts and bolts and, mm. and computer chips and code. So it's actually just right for me to stay a level above that, let them do all of the complicated hard work that I don't know how to do, while I kind of orchestrate on a technical level. So it sounds like there's a real sort of project management, but sort of leadership aspect to the role that you do as well. Yeah, it is a, it is a weird mix in the end, because mm. you have to convince all these people to do what you want them yeah. to do. And, uh, and of course, we're paying for it. Um, which helps, but it's it's often messy in that you'll have you'll have a group of scientists that say, okay, I want uh, I want an experiment on the International Space Station that does X, Y, and Z. And being scientists, they're used to having these experiments in their lab where they've got uh, large amounts of equipment and large amounts of money and and uh, can take months to do it. And suddenly, I've got to build something that's miniaturized, something that has a very low amount of power, that has a low amount of data um, output that you can't go and fix because it's in space. You can't go and tinker with it and change it. And we have to find a way to, to take what the scientists want and reduce it to a set of technical requirements that we can actually build. And sometimes the stakeholder management of, of explaining to the contractors that are building the stuff for me what it needs to do and finding out from them what is possible and going back to the scientists and saying, okay, look, I know you want this thing to be infinitely large and a 3000 degree furnace but how about it's a 2000 degree furnace and it's 10 centimeters wide and trying to find a compromise there's there is a weird mix of, of people management and technical management um, but I quite enjoy that it sounds like there's loads of aspects of the role that you you really love especially that variety what's the worst bit of the role <laughs> hmm. I'm not very good with bureaucracy Paperwork in terms of in terms of all of the documentation about the hardware, the technical documentation, that's all grand. But uh, contracts and change notices and budgets and all of that stuff is not my favourite. Uh, it has to be done. It's part of it, um, and of course, it takes a significant fraction of the of the time to do all of that. I mean, in in the end, the contractual stuff has to has to really be done properly. We are spending the European taxpayers' money. Everything has to be um, traceable. Everything has to follow the proper procedures to make sure that, that we're optimizing it and we can show 
the delegations from each country that we are doing it properly and that they should be trusting us with the taxpayers' money. Um, so it's very important to do right, but that's certainly not my forte, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, paperwork's never going to be as fun as, as going no. at G-Force and all of that. <laughs> and of course, it may, it may sound terribly exciting that I fly around in this plane and I go to um, rocket launches and, and play with these cool bits of hardware. But of course, 90% of my time is sitting behind a computer sending emails. Um, it's the other 10% that's really exciting. What do you think will be the key challenges for the aerospace sector over the next few years? You've already mentioned there sort of it's funded through EU, sort of European taxpayers' money. I'm guessing Brexit has added some challenges in with that. But what should people be thinking about if they want to break into this sector? What are the key things on the horizon that, that might impact on it? For a start, actually, Brexit hasn't affected it very much at all in that the member states of the European Space Agency are completely distinct from the member states of the European Union. Ah, right. Uh, so the UK is still a member of ESA. That hasn't changed. The amount of money the UK puts in hasn't changed. A couple of little, a couple of projects the UK is no longer allowed to be involved in because they have links to the European Commission. But overall, the UK is still just as involved as ever. Um, I think the biggest changes in the sector is probably the commercialization of it. And through to the, through to the, Public consciousness, perhaps you may have seen uh, this stuff with like uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and his Blue Origin rocket and mm. Virgin Galactic and all of that. And that's not irrelevant, but it's it's not as uh, groundbreaking as it press often makes out because it's not orbital. It does go to space, kind of, um, but just for a few minutes. It's not going into orbit. It's not going to make a massive uh, difference yet. But it it is good good first steps. The commercialization of space is going to happen, and these and these first steps are important. Perhaps a company like SpaceX is more impressive. The fact that their rockets are reusable is massively driving down the cost of putting something into space. They can now undercut almost everyone else. And of course, if you reduce the cost of going to space, then you increase the amount of stuff you can put there, uh, how quickly you can do it, the, the mass of it. They're building bigger and bigger rockets. So I think in the next couple of decades, we're just going to see kind of an explosion in the accessibility of space because the commercial aspects are driving the cost down. As long as the politics doesn't get in the way, that's going to be difficult. So, of course, as the European Space Agency, we're meant to be using European launches. And Ariane Spass, that build our launch vehicles, uh, are working on a reusable version, but it's a long way behind, mm. to be honest. There's definitely some big challenges there. I would love to see the European commercial space sector try and catch up because it really is falling behind and that's going to impact us. I guess I would say in contrast to when I started 20 years ago, because of the commercialization, there are going to be opportunities in aerospace companies and in startup aerospace companies that are going to take people much further than they would have done a couple of decades ago. Um, when I started, basically, ESA was the big player in the game, and there was a couple of big contract companies that supported ESA, and that was kind of it. Now, I think we're going to see more and more companies that have their own access to space. So I think there will be more opportunities for people, and you could look around much more. You could cast your net wider. And in terms of standing out from the crowd, I think this accessibility is going to, it's going to create startups that want to do things that sound a bit mad to start with, like you know, asteroid mining and that kind of stuff that all right that's a long way away but now is the time to start thinking about it and it is going to be the people that, that innovate towards doing new things like that 
and manage to demonstrate some small successes that are, that are going to be the successful startups that go a long way in the end. I think there's a there's a, a lot of potential for innovation in the space sector to create new opportunities for people. Wow, it sounds a really fascinating, I was going to say, fascinating space to be working in, but you'll have to excuse <laughs> the pun. Um, well, for more information about those different career areas and some of the organisations that we've mentioned today, I'm going to add some relevant links to the show notes and a link to the full transcript of today's show. But Neil, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. That was really, really interesting. Um, much appreciated. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us this week on What Do You Actually Do? This episode was hosted by me, Kate Morris, edited by Stephen Furlong and produced by both of us. If you love this podcast, spread the word and follow us. Are you eager to get more tips? Follow University of York careers and placements on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. All useful links are in this episode's description. This has been produced at the University of York careers and placements. For more information, visit york.ac.uk forward slash careers.